Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Alex Epstein, author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, philosopher and Bitcoiner. Alex talks about fossil fuels, the philosophy behind wanting to eliminate them, and the very narrow range of solutions that are bandied about as if they're the only choices. Alex also tells us why a lot of green policies are suspect and why energy is important for human flourishing. Alex has thought deeply about energy for a long time. Much like money, we've been lied to about energy and not to a small extent. What I learned from this episode is that reliability of energy is just as important as the energy production itself, and that there are hidden costs to energy reliability that's not considered by people who promote wind and solar. I hope this episode helps you understand the case for human flourishing through energy production. Alex Epstein, how's everything going? It's going great. You know, it's really rare people pronounce my name correctly. So that's, I don't mind, but I always get a special feeling when I hear it pronounced correctly. So thanks for that. (laughs) No problem, man. Where in the world are you right now? I am in my home in Laguna Beach, California. Mm. And yeah, I keep hearing, you know, horror stories about California these days. How's that been for you in the past year or so? Well, I think where I live is really nice. But I don't want to be, I mean, so I sort of deliberately live in a place that's closed off from a lot of the stuff. So I'm not in LA, which is much more oppressive. Orange County is relatively Republican, which I don't really identify with the political party. But in terms of freedom Uh right now, a Republican place is going to be more free than a Democrat place. Mm. So there's that element. And then I'm very near the beach. And so the beach tends to be more open than other places. I don't go to a lot of restaurants and those have started to Mm. open up. So I would say that I... I'm in a very fortunate part of California, but I I think when people are criticizing California, it's very legitimate because there's a lot of oppressive stuff going on. There's a lot of reason why a lot of productive people are fleeing. And as I just posted on Twitter, actually, you know, we're afraid of our forests and we don't have reliable electricity and productive people are fleeing the state. So all three of those, I think, are completely unnecessary and embarrassing and we should have better leadership. Mm, Yeah, indeed. And speaking of which, we're going to be talking about fossil fuels today. Can you give my audience sort of like a background on on who you are and why you are, you know, qualified to talk about this topic? Sure. So I'm best known for a book that I released in 2014, or I guess Penguin released it, Mm -hmm. but it's authored by Mm -hmm. me in 2014 that became a New York Times bestseller called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And People often think, oh, well, if you write that book, it must be, oh, you got paid off by the fossil fuel industry or something (laughs) like that. And I didn't even know anyone in the fossil fuel industry when I came up with my ideas. And and sometimes they think, well, like, oh, you must have a big background in energy. And actually, in a sense, I do because I've been teaching myself and interacting with a lot of experts for the past 14 years. But my background is actually philosophy. And Mm. philosophy is often considered the least relevant background for anything, Uh, (laughs) but I I consider it a very practical background because it makes you very aware of different thinking methods. And I think most people, when they're thinking about things, are not thinking about how they're thinking about things. They just think about them a certain way. And I think Mm. having a background in philosophy makes me aware of certain thinking methods that are bad and then more likely to have certain thinking methods 
that are good. So just to give you just one example among many that'll probably come up, you know, today when we talk about this goal of reducing CO2 emissions, there's a whole question of should that be a goal? But if you have that as a goal, like there's a question of what kind of energy do you want? And it's really interesting that the debate has agreed that, oh, we should have renewable energy. And then renewable mm. energy in practice really just means solar and wind because renewable actually excludes hydro in most mm. cases. And so this, as a philosopher, this is like a whole set of alarm bells. It's like, wait a second, you said the problem was CO2, but now you're excluding nuclear and you're excluding hydro. Why are you coming up with that concept? Why is renewable your goal? There's something suspicious there. And that makes me suspect that the goal of the people pushing it isn't really about CO2. It's mm. about something else. It's just one example among many of where that like philosopher way of looking at thinking methods will notice something that billions of people, including very smart people, will take for granted. You know, look at you know the leading financial institutions right now, leading corporations, governments, they all commit to this renewable equals solar and wind thing. And I see very little reflection on that goal yet it's, it's an incredibly consequential thing to exclude nuclear and hydro from your goals particularly if you're already excluding fossil fuels which I'll argue should not be excluded either. Hmm. Well, so let's dig into that a little bit. You said as a philosopher it put off alarm bells hearing people say that. What alarm bells are going off for you and why from a philosophical perspective is their exclusion of hydro and nuclear unjustified? Well, so the alarm bell is whenever people claim a certain goal and mm. then they advocate means, particularly if they, they're advocating it as a policy. So they're saying as a, our problem is CO2 emissions rising CO2 levels. And so we want to stop that. And then they say, okay, the solution is we are just going to use solar and wind. Like, we're not going to use nuclear and we're going to oppose hydro. And so what that just any inconsistency of ends and means, I find suspicious because and, and it's just a very common thing where people will say they care about something, but it's not what they really care about. They're saying they care about it to appeal to you. And then they put over something different. So that's just a very common type of phenomenon. So in this case, it's just very suspicious. And then the more you learn about energy the more suspicious it becomes because you start to learn that, okay, fossil fuels are 80% of the world's energy. And then even a larger percentage in very important areas such as heavy duty mobility and what's called industrial process heat, both of which have no real uh, replacement by solar and wind. And then you learn that, well, solar and wind have these fundamental problems with reliability. They don't exist in a self-sufficient way. Batteries are not nearly cost-effective for them to just exist with batteries. So they actually exist as what I would call parasites on reliable power plants, namely coal, gas, and hydro, and nuclear. You could do oil as well, but oil is better used for other things. And so you see, okay, wait a second, the people talking about you know, having lower CO2 energy are omitting nuclear, which is the most globally scalable form of low carbon energy. It, it doesn't have the same reliability problems at all. And then there are also a lot of opposition to hydro, which doesn't scale as well as nuclear because it only works in certain locations. But nevertheless, there is significant potential. And yet you see environmental groups, so-called environmental groups like Sierra Club saying, hey, let's shut those down. So, you know, the more I look into it, 
the more I say, okay, there's something suspicious. And then to add on top of that, so you notice we've got opposition to fossil fuels. We've got opposition to nuclear. We've got opposition to hydro. And then you notice what there's actually a lot of opposition to solar and wind. In practice, mm-hmm. there's huge opposition to the mining necessary for solar and wind, to the transmission lines necessary, to the point where it's widely acknowledged by anyone who knows anything in the field that even if these solar and wind schemes could work, which I think there's no chance of, the build out of them is way too slow because there's all of this opposition. And so what you notice then is that we really have a culture and a world that is hostile to energy. No matter what the form of energy is, there's always a reason to oppose it. It's not just there's a reason to oppose fossil fuels, but people find reasons to oppose nuclear, reasons to oppose hydro, reasons to oppose solar and wind. And if you look at what those reasons have in common, it's one thing that is very philosophical. I'm curious if you have an idea. I mean, I'll I'll give my Mm -hmm. answer, but I'm curious. What do you think all the opposition to energy has in common? They're from people that want, like, they're green people, I guess. They're more about reducing energy expenditure in some way or living below certain means or something, something to that effect. Yeah, I think that's exactly on the right track. And and the way you could Mm -hmm. put it is because what does green mean? I mean, green means minimizing or eliminating impact. And if you look at the opposition to all of these, they all have in common that they're claiming that the energy has too much impact on the earth. And Mm -hmm. the implicit goal is we need to eliminate our impact. And, And one of my big things as a philosopher is I think the number one goal, moral goal that the world is pursuing today is eliminating our impact on earth or eliminating our impact on nature. And I think that's an immoral anti-human goal. I think our goal should be to advance human flourishing on Mm. earth. And so that, but I think what you see is that we have a culture where we're totally happy to oppose or eliminate energy without considering the benefits to human flourishing. Like we're willing to oppose fossil fuels, not consider the benefits, nuclear, not consider the benefits, hydro, even solar and wind, not really consider the benefits. So we value energy so little And we're always willing to oppose it because it has too much impact. And it's not just something like CO2 where people are really worried, oh, this might make the planet unlivable. We can talk about that. Mm -hmm. But even like with nuclear radiation, which is super benign, or hydro, they'll talk about, oh, it interferes with free-flowing rivers. And you think, wait a second, you say that you care so much about CO2 and this could alleviate that and you're worried about free-flowing rivers? Or like you're Mm. worried about, you know, it's taking up too much land if it's a solar panel wind turbine. So what you see is there's just no value on energy. And I think what's going on is our ultimate goal, whether we know it or not, is to eliminate our impact. And so that makes us hostile to energy and it makes us morally favorable to the people who oppose energy. And and to your just one more thing to connect it to your point, that view is ultimately we need to live at a much lower level. Because if you believe that we need to eliminate our impact, yeah, that means we need to live at a much lower level. And honestly, it means there need to be far fewer people on earth. And that's not usually admitted as a goal, but that's certainly the direction we're going by opposing every form of energy. Yeah, it's interesting that you're bringing up this whole environmental impact as sort of like a goal in of itself. What's sort of like the philosophical- Yes, I just want to say that is exact. What you said is exactly what it is. It's that eliminating our environmental impact is an end in itself. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to understand philosophically why somebody would want to minimize sort of any impact on the earth. Like, what's the thought process there? What are their values that this becomes sort of like the overriding thing? 
you know, against stuff like human flourishing and, you know, people having nice things. So it has to be that the ultimate goal, the ultimate idea is unimpacted nature. So nature specifically that is unimpacted by humans. And this is, you know, primitive religions had an element of this. There's like a lot of nature worship, or I sometimes call it wilderness worship. And that's in part because they didn't understand how the world worked. So it was just like, there are all these forces and they're kind of, everything is overwhelming them. And so they just think like, okay, like, let's not disturb anything. Let's sort of just pray that things get better. We don't really have any capability to produce anything on our own anyway. So let's just sort of hope that, you know, the rain gods favor us and the sun favors us, et cetera. So there's a more innocent version of this in the past. But, you know, if you look back to, say, Rousseau several hundred years ago, and then people more recently, there is, you know, there's a version of this that's much more anti-human, where they basically say, hey, the good thing in the world is the rest of nature, is everything but us. And they, they really worship it. And they think, yeah, this is perfect and good, and everything about us is bad. And you can see this reflected in this idea of eliminating human impact. Notice that mm. every other impact on nature is considered okay. Like mm. whatever happens in nature is basically considered good. But if humans do it, it's automatically considered bad. And so one way I like to think of it is, okay, anything any other species does is good and anything the human race does is bad. And, and I, I think this is accurately labeled human racism because we do have a bias <laughs> against our own species. And I think it's the worst form of racism. I mean, every form of racism is evil, but this is saying the entire human race is evil. And I think if you look at, how we think about things, we have a lot of human racism. And just one example, which may challenge people a lot, is even our attitude toward man-made CO2. So my belief on how to think about something like CO2 is CO2 is a side effect of, of burning fossil fuels. And so when you're evaluating it, you need to look at the benefits and the side effects. And I think most people don't do that in the first place. They just look for negative side effects. But even if you're just looking mm. at CO2, you definitely have to be open to not only negative impacts, but also neutral or positive impacts. And particularly with CO2, we know just from basic biology that CO2 is plant food. And so you would expect that increasing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, whether it was made by humans or just natural forces, as has happened many times in the past when we've had much higher CO2 levels, that's going to increase dramatically global greening. And in fact, that's happened a lot. And then also, if you look at warming, well, Warming can be undesirable, particularly if it occurs in certain kinds of places, but it can also be very desirable, particularly if it occurs mm. in colder places or if it occurs in colder seasons or if it occurs at colder times of day. And in fact, that's how most global warming works for various physical reasons. It's mostly in colder regions, mostly in colder times of year and mostly colder times of day. That's why there's so much focus on Arctic, because when the mm. planet warms or cools, the Arctic disproportionately warms or cools, which is actually a good thing because it means that the equator, when it warms, the earth has been 25 degrees Fahrenheit warmer in the past. That doesn't mean the equator was 25 degrees warmer. That means that the coldest parts of the earth were actually much more um, tropical. So when you look at it from mm. this perspective, it doesn't have the feel of, oh my gosh, we've sinned and we're going to go to hell. It doesn't have that kind of narrative to it. It has a much more clinical narrative. Hey, let's look at what's good, what's bad. There's obviously some good stuff. There could be some bad stuff, maybe even some really bad stuff, but you don't, right now it ha it's looked at in a very religious way. It's looked at as like, it's wrong for us to impact nature with CO2. And so we expect that it's going to be terrible. And so that's, I'm 
that's just a sign that we have this human racism where we think anything we do is wrong and it's got to lead to catastrophe because nature has this godlike status. So nature is going to punish us. So we've sinned against nature and nature is going to punish us. And you look at issue after issue today, that dual narrative is present. Hmm. Yeah, I've always found it a little bit strange that whenever they talk about the impact of CO2 or any of this stuff, they only tell you like all of the negative stuff. Yeah. Like, like they never tell you, oh, you know, that might also make it, you know, warmer here and that might make it better. It, it's always sort of like disaster scenarios. We're going to get more hurricanes and we're going to get, you know, floods in all these places and all these cities are going to be underwater. Are there any good things? No, there's absolutely <laughs> no good things that will ever happen as a result of anything that we say. And that's never true of anything, like, exactly. in, especially in a complex dynamic system. So, I mean, by the way, why, I posted that. No, I, I, love what, that I love what you just said, by the way. I'm partial to because I, I once posted something exactly like that on Twitter, but I think, particularly mm -hmm. with what you said about a complex dynamic system, there is mm -hmm. no chance that a kind of overall macro impact on it is going to have universally negative results. And that is the assumption. And it's it's comical if you look at the stories because it's, and in particular, if you look at like one thing that's very instructive that I have a little bit in moral case for fossil fuels and I have more documentation of in my book, it's called Fossil Future that comes out next year, which unfortunately you can't order right now, but maybe in a, hopefully in a few mm -hmm. months you can order it. But I'll, I'll just try to summarize it. If you look at the history of these climate of climate prediction. It's somewhat well known in the 1970s. There were many prominent mm. predictions of catastrophic uh, global cooling. There's that's mm. a whole interesting history. And there's a lot to say about that. But one thing that's notable is that the predictions involved all the same kinds of other climate impacts. So the warming versus cooling was different, but the cooling was also supposed to lead to droughts and floods. So the idea <laughs> was, oh, if it gets warmer, it's bad. And if it gets cooler, it's bad. And so the you're asking, what's the cause of that? Well, it's these two related things. And maybe one way to think of it is the view that the unimpacted Earth is a perfect planet. And so there's a mm. moral and a pseudoscientific aspect of that. The moral aspect is the idea that the goal, the moral goal is an unimpacted planet. And so it's immoral to impact it with any significance at all. So that's part of it. But then the other mm -hmm. thing is this idea that the unimpacted planet is what I call a delicate nurturer, that it exists naturally in a stable, sufficient, and safe, what they call delicate balance, and that any human impact is going to destroy that balance. And this is a very pervasive view. I would invite anyone to think about their own view. And I would say it's very likely that you've picked up quite a bit of this delicate nurturer premise. And it really has this view of, yeah, the earth is in this perfect balance and anything we can we are going to do is going to disrupt it. And if you have that view plus the moral view that it's wrong to do, you're always going to have this feeling of, oh, our actions with respect to the earth are intrinsically immoral and inevitably self-destructive. Hmm. Well, it's interesting because in a sense, that's how we manage the economy too, right? Like as if it's this very delicate balance that needs constant adjustment by the Federal Reserve or mm. something like that versus just sort of like letting natural forces play out that there's a tendency to think that complex dynamic systems are very fragile when in fact they're complex and dynamic because they are anti-fragile. They sort of like self-adjust and so on. Where is this idea that the system is so like 
at the brink of disaster unless we do exactly what the authorities say. Like, where does that idea come from and why is it so pervasive? It's a really interesting question. I just, I want to add one observation and then that also give me a moment to think of whether I, I can have a better answer than I do now. But one observation is that I think that some things are fragile and they're exact type of things that don't treat as fragile. So if you look at, say, there's this narrative about what's called the Holocene. So that's the, that's the name for the global climate system, the state of it for about the last 10,000 or a little more years. And there's this idea of, oh, we've added more CO2 to the atmosphere. And so we're moving out of the Holocene and yet the Holocene is where human life flourished. And then the solution is, okay, let's get rid of fossil fuels so that we don't have the CO2. <laughs> but wait a second, life didn't flourish for 11,000 years. It started yeah. flourishing 200 years ago when we started using fossil fuels. So mm. why don't you think that the fossil fuels are the delicate part of the civilization that you're afraid of removing? So there's no mm. fear at all of removing by far our leading cost-effective source of energy from the civilization. That's considered fine and everything can handle it. But the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, even though it's been 15 times higher, you know, when life thrived on earth millions of years ago, like that's considered dangerous. And I think another aspect which relates to Fed as well is there's not a recognition that like human creativity and human production is delicate in the sense that now, if you look at it at a system level, so if you take something like the distortions of the Fed and, and you know just, just destruction of capital allocation that occurs and, and unjust redistribution of wealth that occurs with that kind of thing, in a sense, it's not fragile because you're looking at it at the macro and it doesn't destroy everyone. So we can still see, oh, we're still pretty prosperous. We still grow. But nevertheless, there is huge destruction that is occurring it, by preventing people from making rational choices. Now, the thing is, we don't see it. It's invisible to us unless it's our particular actions. Like you can see, oh, this is what inflation does to me. But it's still the case that production, human thought and human production are fragile in the sense of when force stops them from happening or makes them happen irrationally, that causes destruction. Yet there's no concern about that. So it's interesting that there is this view that the sacred things are like, the desires of government are this sacred, unchangeable thing. And mm. then like human beings and systems can be infinitely malleable to their desires. So it's, you have that. And so the, there's this question you asked of why is this? And I mean, I can see it, you know, I can understand the primitive religious version of it, where it's just, you don't understand how anything works. And I can understand why does that happen in the modern world? I mean, it definitely... So I don't have a comprehensive answer, but it definitely serves an agenda for people who want to take away freedom, because if people believe that we're all interconnected in a way where our actions can just lead to the total collapse of the system, then that's an unlimited license for totalitarian control. So people who tend to want control over our lives will have an incentive to promote those kinds of ideas. And then the more you know, certainly, I think the more government, those people have power to determine the ideas of the society, which happens with government-controlled education, government-controlled science, like that gets reinforced. So I, I don't think that's a total answer, but those are some dynamics. Mm. So there are people that want to control other people. And in a sense, this is their justification or their excuse, if you will, to sort of control it, but putting sort of a justification behind it. It really reminds me of kind of like 
the stories I've heard out of Soviet Russia, where they would claim things that were just like plainly impossible, that they had scientifically determined what scientific things to study or something to that effect, which doesn't make any sense. Like, how do you scientifically determine what scientific things you're supposed to study or, or like kind of boggles the mind. But yet that sort of like authoritarianism seems to be very pervasive in this debate about energy, which, you know, it seems much more about control to me, the way you put it, than about the energy itself. I mean, I think, you know, morally, it's definitely led by this goal of eliminating human impact, which is a very anti-human mm. goal. But then there is a whole, in the broadest sense, industry, but industry is probably too nice a term to describe it. But there's this whole like political slash industrial infrastructure, maybe mostly political, where mm. people have get enormous amounts of power and or status from mm. this. And so you have both of those dynamics going on. And I think it's in general, one reason I'm really interested in, in philosophy is that you know, what the moral ideas of the society are have a huge causal impact on everything else. So if you take this idea of we need to be green, we need to eliminate our impact, and just that being an unquestioned idea, think about like what that incentivizes politicians to do and what kinds of people it puts in power. Well, it puts in power people who want and can get relatively totalitarian control because the idea is if we're free to impact the earth, it's going to be a catastrophe in one way or another. So we can't be free. So it incentivizes them. And then it incentivizes industry to not only not pursue fossil fuels, but to not pursue nuclear because that's not green. And then you have this in whole established and you know it incentivizes the educators to indoctrinate students from very young age. So like this green movement and that and particularly the anti-fossil fuel incarnation really has a moral monopoly in our society. And one of my goals is to break that. Monopoly and to give this alternative of no, we're not for eliminating human impact, we're for advancing human flourishing. And that means the world needs far more energy, including more fossil fuels. Hmm. Well, so make the case for us why are fossil fuels moral? Like, in a sense, the other side has, you know, like not just these kind of ridiculous arguments, but there is sort of like a moral case that they make that we should try to eliminate fossil fuels. Obviously, people like Elon Musk are very much into that. What's your argument to say someone like Elon Musk, who seems extremely concerned with any fossil fuel usage whatsoever? How do you argue for the use of more fossil fuels? So, I mean, the first thing is just getting clear on the goal. So is our mm. goal to advance human flourishing or to eliminate human impact? So I just make clear, yeah, my goal is to advance human flourishing. And then the second thing I'd make clear just philosophically is like the commitment, we have to look at the full context and that we have the benefits and side effects of different options. We can't just look at the benefits of solar and the negative side mm. effects of fossil fuels. So we have to have those, we have to be clear on our goal and we need to be clear on how, what method we're going to use to evaluate alternatives to achieving mm. the goal. And I think once you get that, the key points are one is that low cost, reliable energy is fundamental to human flourishing. So low cost, reliable energy enables us to use machines to improve our lives. Without that, mm. life is very, very bad, including by mm. the way, our environmental quality is very low and our safety mm. from climate is very low. Climate is very naturally dangerous unless we have a lot of energy powering a lot of machines to build a resilient, durable civilization. So if you get number one is that 
like low cost reliable energy is fundamental to human flourishing. And then number two is low cost reliable energy is desperately needed. There are billions and billions of people with virtually no energy. So I think of the world as in a desperate shortage of energy, which almost nobody talks about. Mm. And then number three is that fossil fuels are the only source of low cost reliable energy that can scale on the level of the billions of people who have it and the level of the billions who need it. And that's something we can definitely drill into, but that's at the high level. And that I think this is the only technology for the foreseeable future, particularly because nuclear has been criminalized and it's way behind what it might be. There's just nothing that can provide the world, the energy the world needs to flourish in the way that fossil fuels can. And then the fourth is that if you look at the most significant concerning side effect of fossil fuels, CO2, it does have a warming impact, but that impact is nowhere near catastrophic, let alone apocalyptic. One, because the extent of any negative impact is exaggerated. But the main thing is that the energy we get from fossil fuels allows us to neutralize virtually any climate danger. So fossil fuels, it's kind of like an antibiotic that cures its own side effects. Like antibiotics Mm. have benefits and side effects, but they don't cure their own side effects. You have to suffer the side effects. But with energy, the benefits can cure the side effects. Like you could have, imagine, you know, you had a little more drought from fossil fuels, which I don't think is established, but you can use the energy from the fossil fuels to have enough irrigation and enough drought relief where you're way better off in terms of drought than you would be without the fossil Mm. fuels. So it's again, that, you know, energy is low cost, reliable energy is fundamental to human flourishing. It's desperately needed. Fossil fuels are a unique source of it. And the side effects, including the climate side effects, will be far, far outweighed by the benefits. Yeah. One of the things that Marty Bent told me when we were talking about oil and gas that that really like sort of changed my perspective on fossil fuels is that really fossil fuels are the one source of energy that's very portable. You can transport oil from the Middle East all the way to, you know, somewhere in the middle America or whatever and get useful energy out of it. Almost every other form of energy is not that portable. And, you know, it has sort of like an energy radius or the ability to transport it, you know, down to a few hundred miles or something like that. And after that, it's, you know, it costs too much to transmit or, you know, the infrastructure isn't there. In what way does that impact sort of your moral evaluation of fossil fuels? Because it it really is much easier to spread out fossil fuels than almost any other energy. Yeah, it's a a great issue. And I've become a fan of Marty. I met him on, uh, I was on one of his podcasts and I, I often enjoy his posts on Twitter. And I think the work he's doing is very cool. So yeah, if you think about like, I talk about low cost, reliable energy, the more precise version of that is you need highly cost-effective energy. So that includes low cost. It includes reliability or being on demand, but it also includes being versatile. It can power all the different machines we need. And that's very important because some of the machines are highly mobile machines where you need a lot of energy in a small amount of space, like an airplane. There's reasons why airplanes all run on oil and tractors, Mm. you know, which are really important if you care about food. And then there's this issue of, it's not just low cost, reliable, versatile, but it's also on a global scale. So it's Mm. providing low cost, reliable, versatile energy for billions of people in thousands of places. And I mentioned that fossil fuels are 80% of the world's energy. And a significant part of that is because of the reasons, the kind of reason that you mentioned, and I'd put it more broadly as fossil fuels have remarkable natural attributes. That's kind of one of their advantages. And then two, human ingenuity has been figuring out how to 
cost-effectively exploit those attributes in the good sense for generations. So an analogy would be silicon and semiconductors. So let's say that people say, oh, like we should get off silicon. And you'd be Mm. like, wait a second. Okay. But silicon has some really remarkable properties as a semiconductor. That's why we use it as a semiconductor. And then the other thing is we've spent generations building a semiconductor industry specifically around the attributes of silicon. So not everything we would do for say germanium or something else would be the same. And so you'd think it's going to be really hard to replace this, let alone surpass it, because A, it has these remarkable attributes, and B, there's just been this unrivaled amount of ingenuity applied specifically to those attributes. And so the same with fossil fuels. They have these attributes, and the three, I think, essential ones are, one is they're naturally stored energy. So you contrast that with solar and wind, which are naturally, they're intermittent flows of energy. So they're not stored where you can just deploy them at any time. They just flow. And so sometimes they're there, most of the time they're not. So there's that. They're naturally stored. They're naturally concentrated, which is what you're getting at. Oil in particular is one of the most portable forms of energy that exists. That's why it's really the most valued material in the world, because it's a huge amount of energy in a small amount of space. Plus, being a liquid Mm. gives it a bunch of benefits. It's just super easy to burn smoothly, and you don't need people shoveling coal and that kind of thing. And the other thing is it's naturally abundant. So it's naturally stored naturally concentrated, naturally abundant. So the only other source of energy that has these three attributes is nuclear energy using uranium Mm. or thorium because uranium is natural or thorium. They're naturally stored. They're naturally extremely concentrated and they're naturally abundant, but the technology for harnessing them is much more complex. And also it unfortunately has been radically held back by the green movement which has demonized and and virtually criminalized it. So unfortunately, we don't have, we don't really know what nuclear can do because we don't have those generations of ingenuity because that was never really allowed to function. So in practice, nothing is close to fossil fuels and it's hard to imagine anything else coming close. I mean, what you would really need to have is you need to have an incredibly low cost, ultra reliable way of producing electricity. And then Mm -hmm. you would need to, try to approximate some of the things that just for example oil does like you would try to approximate it with you know having making your own batteries so you're making your instead of relying on natural storage like making your own storage with batteries and stuff but we don't have anything close right now to what oil can do even even pre-commercial let alone mm. commercial so right now we have batteries which are very expensive but more importantly they're just nowhere near as dense as oil but then on top of that, there is no right now global scale source of electricity that's super cheap that's not fossil fuels. So right now, fossil fuels are around mm. 66% of the world's electricity. I think that's, I might be a little bit off, but it's it's in that kind of range, 80% of the world's energy overall. So yeah, to replace fossil fuels, you would need these two things that don't exist. One is a way of substituting for electricity. Electricity is only about 20% of the world's energy use right now. So you need a way of substituting mm. for electricity, and that doesn't exist you know, with any significant development compared to what it would need to be. And then you would actually need a non-fossil fuel source of electricity. And your only hope for that, I believe, would be by liberating nuclear and having a couple generations to really get it right. But instead, Mm. what we're doing is we're talking about abolishing fossil fuels, opposing nuclear, opposing hydro, and then using solar and wind, which as I mentioned right now, they are just functioning as parasites on grids that truly depend on coal, gas, nuclear or hydro. So they're portrayed as cheap, but really what's going on is people aren't accounting for the full cost of them because they don't replace the cost of the reliable energy infrastructure they add to it. And that's why you see in California, 
and in Germany and in Denmark, all these places that try to use significant amounts of these unreliable sources of electricity, even though we're told they're cheap, the electricity always becomes much more expensive. And again, it's because they're parasites, they're not replacements. So they add to the cost of electricity, they don't replace the cost of more expensive electricity. Hmm. Well, that brings up something. I've always suspected that a lot of the sort of like calculations on the costs of using something like wind or solar seem kind of like fudged or manipulated somehow. Why did you suspect that's definitely true? But what made you suspect that? Well, because the materials are, you know, I mean, like you look at a wind turbine, it's enormous, right? Like, and I have trouble thinking that you can actually get that much energy out of it as to make it, you know, economical. Like, it still astounds me that something like a wind turbine, which has like a lifespan of 30 years or whatever, that's running yeah, some of the time or whatever, it just seems like the calculations and the math just don't seem to make that much sense to me. But I mean, I don't know what goes into making a turbine. And, you know, I mean, these are just giant, giant blades and they're spinning on this thing. It's got to have maintenance. There's probably some lubricants that you need in there and, you know, like different parts and rare earth metals and all that stuff. It just something doesn't seem to add up economically. Yet we're constantly told that this is much cheaper and more cost effective. Is that true? Or like, am I onto something here? I think you're onto something in general, but the specific part of the cost you're talking about is relatively low. Although I will say, mm. you're asking about these different inputs. You mentioned lubricants and rare earths. And so mm-hmm. both of those point to the use of oil because oil is overwhelmingly used for mining things because it's so portable. Mm. And mm. then lubricants are derived from oil mm. largely. And so that points to part of what we're not getting is honesty that the whole process of producing these things is fossil fueled. So it's not Mm. like you're making wind turbines using wind turbines. You're Mm. making wind turbines using fossil fuels, whereas fossil fuels you make using fossil fuels. There's a lot of dishonesty about energy because people don't realize every non-fossil fuel form of energy uses huge amounts of fossil fuel, whereas fossil Mm. fuel can just be made using fossil fuels. So there's that. So in general, the dishonesty is that the full process is not understood and quantified. And so that what I just mentioned is part of not understanding it, because you really would want to understand that if you're talking about getting rid of fossil fuels, oh, the wind turbines depend on fossil fuels, you would kind of want to know that. But so you take the wind turbine by itself, if the mm. ele- or a solar panel, like if the electricity was reliable, so if, if the wind blew constantly at the same rate mm. all the time, or the sun mm. shone in the same rate, like if you had a solar, like if it was the equivalent of in space, you know, mm. where you could just directly access the sun, then it would be cheaper than almost mm. anything right now. Mm. I mean, now if you tried to make them with wind turbines, solar panels, I don't think that would be true. But on their own, they would be quite cheap, and you know they have certain advantages. I mean, the main advantage is there's no direct fuel cost to them, mm. and so, you know, mm. 10, 20, 30 years—that is a long time to run with no fuel. So that is a nice thing. But the hypothetical I set up is completely unreal because the issue is that they don't run all the time. It's not even just a binary thing. They're on or off. They're on or off at different levels. So they're uncontrollable. And yet electricity is probably the most, the thing most in need of control in our society, because the whole way it works is that we demand different amounts of electricity all the time, and we need Mm. supply to match that exactly. So electricity in particular, there's a premium on controllability. So 
it makes no sense to talk about, oh, what's the cost of just the solar panels or just the wind turbines when you're assessing the cost of solar and wind? You have to look at the full system cost. What does it do to your full system cost to have these things on? And if, so if you think about it from that perspective, one thing that comes to mind is because of the way these things are located, you need very large. And also another attribute of the solar and wind is they're very dilute energy. So you need lots of space for them. So you need to account for land. You need to account for all the materials. We also need transmission lines that are taking them from where the sun and the wind is relatively to these Mm. city centers. So that's one system cost that's often not taken into account. But the biggest one is the cost of turning something unreliable and uncontrollable into something reliable and controllable. So that's the real thing. And you could think of it by analogy as... Now, imagine that you have a construction company and you have one worker who's available and he's $20 an hour and he comes in, let's say it's 40 hours a week of working and he comes in every day, you know, takes a sick day once every five years. And then you have another person who comes in 14 hours a week and you don't know when. And he says, I'm going to charge you $15 an hour. Well, is that person cheaper? Well, of course they're not cheaper because you need to pay for them and you need to pay for the reliable worker. And it's going to cause all sorts of efficiency problems, even switching between the reliable and the unreliable worker. And that's really what's happening on our grid, where we're Mm. treating this unreliable electricity as equivalent, and we're paying the equivalent or sometimes more with subsidies for unreliable electricity. And so what it does, as I said before, it just adds costs to the grid. So the, the number one thing about it is because it's unreliable, it doesn't replace the reliable electricity, it adds to it. And what's going on is people who claim that it's cheap, they're engaging in partial cost accounting. They're only looking at the cost, usually of the solar panels and wind turbines. They're often ignoring the transmission infrastructure and they're almost always ignoring the reliability cost because if you look at the reliability cost, then no one would buy these things. Mm. Yeah, and this is a common thing in a sort of like complex calculations like this is people tend to look at sort of like the very obvious costs, right? Like the gas guzzling SUV that you're using and they point at that. Whereas like if you're actually looking at CO2 emissions, the you know, leaf blow, gas power leaf blower that your lawn guy is using is like actually emits way more than your car does in a year. I don't, I don't think it's that's, that's, I'm not sure about that. Sure. I mean, I think it emits more per unit of energy. I doubt that. I mean, depends on how much the well, power I, is. I, it's apparent, apparently very, very inefficient. So you do get like all sorts of, well, I, but you know, let's put that aside for a second. The fact of the matter is there's sort of like, Ignorance of sort of like the hidden costs. And this is really at the heart of economics is that oftentimes, you know, it's very easy to see the obvious costs, but the hidden costs are sort of like not put into the public mind very much. And that seems to be the essential problem here with energy. We've definitely seen it in Bitcoin with the Federal Reserve, with inflation, with the monetary policy. Very few people know to take into account all of the hidden unseen costs. And that seems to be the problem here. So my question to you is, how do we get people to learn about all of these unseen costs that you're talking about, including, you know, making unreliable energy reliable, all of the various technologies that you need to add into the cost calculations of all these tech in order to make it more reliable and so on? One thing I'll point out first is that this is really only a problem when you lack economic freedom. Because Mm. when you have economic freedom, 
then you don't you as a consumer don't need to know about all the costs in some sort of like engineering way because you see it reflected mm. in the price of the good. So imagine we had like no government control over electricity and we had enough freedom of development where you could have you know competing electric grids, which would be really nice if you could have that. Mm. Like what would be clear is just, oh yeah, the virtue signaling grid that's 20% solar, that costs way more than the one mm. that's just coal and gas. So you'd be very aware of that. But what's happening here is there's a government monopoly. There's not a real market. There are all these policies. And so what happens is bureaucrats or their equivalent just come up with these bogus calculations and then other people need to undo them. I mean, you just think about what goes into the price of electricity. It's the entire system. Like electricity is really one, it's one giant machine. And if you imagine mm. it's one giant machine with millions of components, you can imagine that different people have different kinds of accounting for what's going on. And I would imagine there's a similar thing in monetary policy where it's, it's monopolized by one entity and they can mm. say whatever they want in terms of, oh yeah, if it hadn't been for what we did, you guys would all be poor. Like you can make up a lot of stuff. So, but whereas when you have competitive markets, like people actually have to report reality because reality is reflected in the competing prices that are chosen that are offered different goods and services. Now, when you don't have that, I think what you can do, I, mean, I think you have to really point out in clear terms what's going on and then use whatever kinds of illustrations are possible. So that's what I try to do with electricity is talk about, okay, it doesn't replace the cost of reliable power plants. It adds to them. So trying to get the cause and effect of it and some of the other things I explained. And then also showing examples where that's borne out. So even though governments do a good job of hiding how much solar and wind really adds, you can make points such as, oh, okay, Germany added a lot of solar and wind in you know, around 2000, and then their electricity prices doubled, and they're mm. three times higher than ours. Or our electricity prices have gone up significantly, even though natural gas is our leading source, and the price of that has gone way down. So something mm. had to drive it up. What is it? Oh, maybe it's that wind and solar that were mm. mandating. And so you can, I think it's just, but it's important, it is made harder because- we don't have economic freedom and we sort of are in the position of these, it's almost as if, you know, different hypothetical government planners slash central planners arguing about, oh, do we do it this way? Do we do it this way? And there's something unsavory about that. What you'd really want is just a market where reality is the judge. And, and one of the unsavory elements of it is it's easy for my kind of position to be positioned as, oh, you're against innovation. Like you're against solar and wind. And that, no, mm. I'm not at all. I'm against government dictated energy. And this mm. is the government, this is not an innovation. This is a government dictated inferior alternative. Mm. And so that's why I try to emphasize now I'm very in favor of nuclear. So I'm very in favor of anything that actually has evidence that it can be cost effective and is willing to compete. But I'm not in favor of something that wants to outlaw its competition and then get mandates and subsidies and, and all sorts of other unfair preferences. Hmm. That's an excellent point about prices or in a truly free market being pieces of information that consumers use in order to suss out like what's actually expensive and sort of taking the unseen hidden costs into account because in a sense, like the price will reflect it at some point. Whereas with bureaucracies, they obscure these hidden costs and hide them as much as possible to tell the best story that they can in order to, you know, basically push whatever agenda item that they have. 
So why are energy markets so heavily regulated and what can we do about that? I think there are two two dynamics going on. And I think you can see this with the history of it. So so I'd say that the more recent one, you know, you could call it the environmental catastrophe movement. And this is the whole impact elimination movement. So that's a moral movement and characterize it as a religious movement and a political movement, all, all three of those. And so that has well, I'll just I guess I'll just talk about that first. So that clearly is, as we've discussed, a very convenient justification for any amount of power that somebody wants to seize. I mean, you're seeing more and more and more. Like the ideas that people are comfortable floating right now. Like I saw one yesterday that I posted on Twitter about this guy saying, Yeah, maybe we can engineer human beings to not like meat. And the idea is, <laughs> oh, maybe they'll like, I think he might have even said that maybe they'll like bugs. But it's just, okay, everything is on the chopping block. I mean, they're just talking, and they're, people are talking about, yeah, we shouldn't fly. Like, what is better than flying? I mean, this idea that we're talking about human beings not flying. And then I was on a, another Bitcoin show yesterday, and the guy was talking to me about Mark Carney, who's this, in my view, big villain from England. And he's talking about, oh, yeah, like, we're going to have to have a lot less freedom. And he just says that casually, like, that's not terrible. Like, what is mm. life without freedom? But it just shows you the extent to which when people have this idea that your freedom is inherently catastrophic, you being free mm. is catastrophic. And if you believe that impact is inherently catastrophic, then freedom is going to be catastrophic because people always choose to have impact when they're free because they want to live and do well. Like That is the ultimate justification for energy totalitarianism or any kind of totalitarianism. So that is the more immediate thing that's going on and the thing I'm fighting most against. But there is the broader element of just statism and then the morality of collectivism, which just mm. says that, well, the government should control, you know, has a right to control every aspect of life and is capable of doing so for whatever it perceives to be the public good. And so that's been something mm. that has, you know, was on its own increasing and is is increasing in some ways in lockstep with the environmental stuff. But that already would lead to say in the 70s, things like, oh, we need a department of energy to really mm. plan the future of energy. And with having no issue that, oh, we've got this monopoly electric grid, is there anything we can do about it? It's just like, no, it's totally fine if the government controls every aspect of this area. So it's this combination of like the politics of statism with the you know religion of green. And you mm. know a hybrid of that is something like the Green New Deal where it's just like, mm. yes, we're going to mandate these green approved technologies. But by the way, the greens will never let us build anything anyway. I mean, they're going to build all those solar panels, wind turbines. but we say we're in favor of those and the government's going to totally take it over. And it's considered a reasonable type of thing. Whereas I consider both aspects of that unreasonable, mm. that you would only prefer this very narrow segment of energy that can't possibly do what fossil fuels can do. And then you're going to have the government control it. I mean, that's even worse. So you take the worst forms of energy implemented by the worst possible means. Hmm. Yeah, there's sort of like an Overton window of acceptable energy sources that keep shrinking mm -hmm. to the point where, as you were saying, even wind and solar are being considered like at an anti-environment or something by sort of like the extreme members of the Green Party or whatever. Like, it seems like a very self-destructive, anti-human kind of philosophy. Like, where does that end up? If they do sort of, you know, I guess in a sense, win this narrative battle, what happens to the rest of us? Well, 
I mean, I don't think they're going to win. They're not going to win in the sense they want to win. They're already winning much, much more than is good. I mean, that's mm. an understatement. I mean, the, the consequences are already terrible, particularly if you look at the poorest parts of the world, which have been discouraged from using fossil fuels and industrializing and lifting themselves out of mm. poverty. It's And it's particularly the ones that are most poor, like take mm. places like China and India. They have a lot of autonomy right now in terms of, I mean, at least on the level of government, which is not ideal at all, but at least they've got this idea that, yes, we are going to develop, we are going to industrialize, we're using a lot of fossil fuels and we're going to use more. Maybe we'll, if we're China, we'll lie about it, but we're definitely going to use more of it. And their 85% of their energy system is, is fossil fueled right now, making most of our green energy, by the way. But mm. if you take like poor places, like some of the particularly some of the poorest places in Africa, they're very vulnerable to these green policies because they're often dictatorships that are very susceptible to foreign aid type incentives. So if Western mm. governments say, hey, you know, only use solar and wind, don't build new coal plants, maybe they'll say, oh, and you'll get this big payoff from some climate fund. They'll say, okay, sure. But that is you know, radically destructive and impoverishing to people in those places. So I just say th this anti-human impact elimination movement is already very destructive. And it's kind of this issue of hidden costs. People aren't seeing it. It's kind of out of mm. sight, but it's a little insight now that we have more and more blackouts. But yeah, I mean, if it did, so if it was implemented consistently, then literally billions of people would die a very early death. I mean, that's just, mm. it, we have 8 billion people. Today's world supports 8 billion people only because we are a machine labor civilization, because we have machines doing most of our work for us. If we had to have manual labor, this planet cannot support anywhere near 8 billion people. And so if you're talking about mandating solar and wind, and then even opposing those two, like, yeah, it, it would be just complete mass murder. Now, I don't think it's going to happen that way, but it is important to know that that is the goal. Like that is, that's what we're actually pursuing. We're pursuing it hypocritically, we're pursuing it inconsistently, but we are pursuing this goal of just the mass destruction I mean, it's much more apocalyptic than than certainly than CO two emissions are. Like they got it in reverse. Mm. They think that emitting, you know, changing the amount of CO two from 0.03 percent of the atmosphere to 0.04 percent and then to 0.05 percent, they think that's the apocalypse. No, the apocalypse is not allowing us to do that because then that for the foreseeable future that means very little energy. But I think what's actually going to happen the the default case if I and you and rational people can't do anything about it is I think the biggest things are going to be the impoverishing, you know, the perpetuating poverty in the poorest places. Another mm. one is going to be the rise of China to very dangerous levels because they're totally committed to using fossil fuels. And they love the strategy of using fossil fuels to make us inferior energy that they dominate the supply chain of. So it's just a very overt kind of strategy. And then the third thing is just a general decline in standard of living, which you know you already see with things like blackouts all the time and rising electricity prices and declining industry. Like that would all continue massively if anything like even what Biden wants to do in the near future is done. But I do think that I am finding, you know, with my own work that the more I can really explain the issues clearly, particularly just and have a positive alternative, so really have this idea of advancing human flourishing and that includes a good environment and you take away this anti-human environmental movement's monopoly on the idea of a good environment, I think that's really key. Because that the whole reason they're so popular is people think, oh, if I want a good environment, I need to embrace the so-called environmentalists. And I'm trying to say, no, 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 no. If you want a good environment, stay the hell away from those people. Like, get <laughs> on the human flourishing side of things. Mm -hmm. 
Well, so I have to ask about Bitcoin's impact going forward. Do you think Bitcoin ultimately helps the energy movement, I don't know, be more efficient or like what's Bitcoin's impact going to be in this fossil fuel industry? I don't have a complete answer to that. I mean, the part I'm Mm. most interested in and focused on is I think there are a lot of rational people in the Bitcoin world that are going to help change the discussion of energy. You're already Mm. seeing this. And I don't know who's friends and who's not in the Bitcoin world, but I know Dr. Savedin Amos, he's been on my podcast a couple of times. He and I have talked a lot. I know he's been heavily influenced by Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and he's written a lot of good stuff on energy and talking about that. You know, there's Marty Bent, Stefan Levera, just different people I've talked to. Alex Spetsky is talking yesterday, Mark Moss. I'm meeting a lot of people who really get these arguments and who think mm. in a similar framework. And I think there are a lot of reasons why why this audience is particularly disposed. I think there's some very rational people. And also there's definitely an incentive when the thing you're advocating is being attacked on ground on anti-fossil fuel grounds. Like I mm. think people are more incentivized to look into my kind of view because it's mm. affecting them so immediately. And I, what I have seen, you know, if you look at Musk's attack, there were a lot of rational responses from the Bitcoin community. I think there were also a lot of appeasing responses, like this mm. kind of, oh, yeah, we actually use 76% renewable, which is just a crazy lie that's mm. unbelievable to me that anyone could say that without. Like, if you actually looked at it, they took a survey and 76 or 74%, depending on the survey you looked at, said that they used some. That's like if you took a survey and 76% of people said, I eat some chocolate. And then you say chocolate is 76% of the world's eating, like food. Mm -hmm. It's just so there is a kind of opportunism seizing on the standard renewable lies, which I'm really discouraging in the Bitcoin world. But I think there are a lot of people who really are understanding and can articulate the value of energy. And at the same time, they believe in the value of Bitcoin. And I think that's really great because it's energy is so important And we should embrace all the ways in which energy enables us to use machines to improve our lives. And so it's great to see people in the Bitcoin saying, yeah, this is we're creating value in the world. We're proud. We're using these machines to try to create a rational form of currency that has all of these kinds of benefits. I think it's going to be a big plus for the energy debate, the, the Bitcoin community. And then there are all sorts of interesting kind of technical things that are happening in terms of, you know, you can use certain stranded forms of electricity. And that's all interesting. I don't have particular expertise on the trajectory of that, though. Mm, Yeah, I mean, that to me, will change the game a little bit, at least, you know, like, put to use forms of energy that you would never otherwise use, because they're so far away from civilization, and there's no real need for it in that area. But you know, like, there's like wave energy and things like that, which like nobody uses, because you have to like harvest that energy from like, you know, like the oceans and stuff. And it's hard to transmit that energy back onto into places where people would actually be able to use it. But with Bitcoin, you can actually take advantage of stuff like that, which uh, I I doubt that one. I don't think mm -hmm. that's I would be very surprised if wave energy Mm -hmm. really Uh takes off. That's been around for why is it there are some interesting kinds of use cases? I mean, I think something mm-hmm. like what Marty's working on is a very plausible one because mm-hmm. that's one where, including for political reasons, you have a lot of just a very valuable fuel that you can't transport and like you have a very high incentive to generate it. Like you're drilling for oil, 
you have excess natural gas, there's not the transportation infrastructure. If you could, you know, set up an efficient electricity burning thing and power with that, yeah, that mm-hmm. there's a reason to think that that's true. There's it, a lot of crackpot was, energy ideas that still aren't going to work with Bitcoin. Well, I'm just saying like, it's possible to actually go explore them now, right? Like, and see if it would actually work because you're no longer restricted by, okay, you need to be near where people would actually use that energy because in a sense, you can port the Bitcoin miners wherever you want. And if it happens to be in the middle of the Gobi Desert where like nobody actually lives and you find a source of energy that's there, that's very consistent and reliable or whatever, you can actually use all of that, which, you know, this stranded gas that Marty talks about is like. So, you know, I have some optimism going in that direction because I do think that there's a huge incentive for people to go find sources of energy that might not be getting used right now that you can probably find. But, you know, I'll defer to your evaluation of some of this stuff. But anyway, let's wrap this up. I know it's been more than an hour. It's kind of really flown by very fast. Where can people find out more about the stuff? And can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, the book that you're releasing next year and so on? Sure. Thanks for asking. So I post a lot of stuff on Twitter. So twitter.com slash Alex Epstein. I've actually think a lot of people don't like Twitter. I really enjoy it, but in part, because I don't really care when people say irrational stuff that insults me unless unless it makes sense, in which case I'm grateful to them. But so I enjoy Twitter and I've met a lot of rational people through there. So happy for people to follow me on Twitter. And then I have a website, energytalkingpoints.com that has lots of really well-referenced points on many of the issues that we've discussed here. And it also has a mailing list that I'd highly encourage people to sign up for. So energytalkingpoints.com. And then I have a book, which you can get now called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which makes a lot of the points that I made today. And I think it's still a valuable thing to get, but there is a new book, Fossil Future, where if it existed today, I would tell you, you just needed to get that. You didn't need to get The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels because it doesn't cover everything exactly that The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels does, but it is really like, this is the ultimate current comprehensive clear case. It's essentially, I, you know, Seven years ago, I wrote this book. I had six months to write it. I think I made a good case at the time. But in the last seven years, I've been thinking this through really systematically, looked at the latest data, thought through the arguments, had practice explaining to people. So this is kind of like the real case for fossil fuels. I'm very excited. The first one was very successful, but I think this one is going to be much more clarifying for people. And I really hope that in particular, a lot of people are able to read it and then it'll be retainable enough in their minds where they can use it to educate others. That's one of my goals. It's just that it's it's so clear that you can not only read it and find it persuasive, but that you can also use the ideas to persuade other people. Well, I certainly hope that more people will be convinced because I think you're right. There's almost like a collective blindness to how great energy is for humanity, kind of like sound money that I think people can definitely benefit from. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. This is really, thanks for all the great questions and insights. It was really fun to talk. Unchained Capital is a new sponsor of the podcast. 
I recently joined Unchained as an advisor on the engineering side. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they're building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin-native financial services partner, learn more at Unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Alex can be found at, at Alex Epstein on Twitter and energytalkingpoints.com. Until next time, Fiat the Lenda Est.